This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 76. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Many times in life, your journey or your path isn't just a simple straight path from point A to point B. And our guest this episode, Chad Wilson, is a prime example that even a path with starts and restarts can still have success and be very impactful. Before founding GridironStuds.com and the Gridiron Studs app, which helps connect college football prospects with college football coaches and even college football fans, Chad would follow his dream of playing college football at Long Beach State University and then would transfer to the University of Miami after the football program at Long Beach State was disbanded in 1991. Chad would play alongside such greats as Ray Lewis, Warren Sapp, Dwayne The Rock Johnson while earning all Big East Conference as a defensive back and being part of the U fraternity. Here's episode 76 with Chad Wilson. I am excited to talk to you, Chad. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and a lot of things going on. And first question I have to ask, though, what was the atmosphere like with Ray Lewis, your former teammate at the University of Miami, as he's inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame? It was outstanding. I mean, it's my first time there. And, you know, I don't want to I don't want to sound crazy, but, um, you know, it's it's usually an experience that person really only gets to experience once in their lifetime um, unless you're inducted and then you're there every year. But I did have the pleasure of being invited last year, but I was unable to go. Uh, I was invited by Terrell Davis, who I played with at Long Beach State. And, you know, I was able to go this year. Great, tremendous atmosphere. You're, you know, around all these great guys you grew up watching play, uh, guys who played during your era. Um, and good to be around a bunch of um, guys who have reached that highest honor and just kind of get an idea of what the what the personalities are like. And uh, when you're around them, you get to understand what it is about them that is, has taken them to this point. You know, um, people tend to focus on the physical part of things when they're looking at a, a, you know, a great athlete. But a lot of people fail to realize that it's something within them, um, whether it's, you know, characteristics or mindset or just their personality that propels them to this level of greatness. So it was great to be around that. And then, you know, Ray himself just pours energy out to, to, to everyone. So it was good to be around that again. He is definitely a ball of energy from that perspective. And you mentioned these other characteristics that these players have that reach the Hall of Fame, the obviously elite type of level. And it's not just the physical aspect. Obviously, that's important. But is there a common theme from your vantage point as far as a mental makeup of what makes some of these elite level athletes so uh, unique based on their mental aspect as well? The one thing I could draw out of it is just competitive. They're all competitive. And I think from from that characteristic and everything else comes, if you're competitive and you want to win, you just kind of find a way for uh, all of the other things to fall into place. You know, so uh, that's the biggest thing that I got out of this. Um, all of these guys are competitive and, you know, that leads them to wanting to be better than um, those around them and those in front of them. The other unique thing, too, and this is something that I've always known just from playing and being around guys um, and then also coaching kids and observing um, how they go about doing things. Not only are um, these elite athletes competitive, but they, the ones that reach this point seem to have the ability to make the others around them great as well. Um, and I, will, I always tell my kids, you know, like, so if I'm having a, when I was coaching and I had a meeting, 
and I tell them the meeting's at 2 o'clock. And, like, the first few guys show up there, and they sit down in the chair feeling all satisfied. Well, I'm here, Coach. I say, well, that's good that you're here. You know, a great guy would have had all the other guys in here at 2 o'clock. You know what I mean? So you got to – these guys seem to have that ability, whether, you know, they train themselves that way or it's just innate to make the others around them great. And, and Ray Lewis really, really exemplified that. I saw that early when he started playing for us in the University of Miami. Well, now, there was a journey for you as well. You've got a competitive nature. So let's walk back before you get to Long Beach State and then obviously on your way to the University of Miami – was football a passion of yours growing up? And what's some of your first memories of playing football? Uh, my first memories of playing football, because I was born in Brooklyn. Just to give you a quick history, I was born in Brooklyn, quickly moved to Trinidad, lived there for three years of my life, came back into the United States when I was five. So while I was in Trinidad, introduced to the sport of soccer. And it's really the first sport that I, you know, I played. Um, because that's popular in West Indies, especially in Trinidad. So I came back to the United States, um, you know, football, I had to be introduced to it and I took to it pretty quickly. And then, you know, you know, you're in Brooklyn, it's not like South Florida. There aren't fields everywhere. <laughs> if you play football, you're playing, you know, uh, on the street and you're dodging the Chevy and the Oldsmobile that's parked on the side of the road. Um, and you're throwing, you're throwing fakes on concrete. And, um, that's really where I started playing. And then when I came down to Florida, I was 10 years old, was living, um, with my mom and my grandparents and my grandfather was digging the soccer. So again, I was put in the soccer, played soccer. And then, you know, I was going to school and these dudes would show up on Friday with these football jerseys and, uh, everybody, particularly the girls would be talking to these guys. I'm like, you know, what is the deal? Where do you guys play ball at? I need to get where they're at. So there's the competitive nature taking over. Um, so I just started talking to a few of them and I find out, you know, football, they play football at this place called Pasadena Lakes, not too far from the middle school. So, um, I'm probably 11 years old. I go out there, I play football. Well, now football in pads is not football in the street in Brooklyn. So we're in these pads and I'm getting knocked sideways and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't, I don't, I, look, this is not, uh, how I thought it was going to be. But, um, you know, I happened by the grace of God, I was able to be, uh, put on a pretty good football program where they coached well and the guys were supportive. And, um, you know, they, I got called the names that you don't want to be called when you're not, you know, tough. And I eventually toughened up, um, and started playing football the way that it should be. So that's really, that was really my introduction to organized football, um, was dudes showing up in jerseys and magically all the girls were talking to them. That's how that worked. Of course, there's always some type of girl that gets involved and it makes you even more competitive. <laughs> Man, they're at the center of everything. That's right. They are, uh, without a doubt. Now, with this passion towards this football and making the transition from now really playing tackle football, did you play other sports? Did Was soccer still a part of sports that you played? Yeah, soccer eventually um, made its way out, and, and then I moved into football, and then uh, the guys that played football, some of them played baseball. So I played baseball, which I played in, in New York City as well. We call it stickball. So, you know, you got a, a, what amounts to a broom handle and you're hitting a racquetball. So, um, developed some hand eye coordination and, and played baseball. It's really a sport that I've, um, regretted getting up at the time that I did. I played till 10th grade and wish I had kept playing. Why did you, uh, regret giving up baseball then? Because I felt I was, Good at it, had potential in it. Um, I was fast. I could cover a lot of ground. Um, I was a big baseball fan. You, know, you can understand coming back into the States, into New York City in 1977, the Yankees uh, won the World Series. They won it again in 1978, and they were just good um, at that time. So I was a really big – I'm a big – I'm a, I'm a biggest fan of the New York Yankees over everything. So uh, I love the sport and kept playing it, but I just saw – I felt like my biggest opportunity to get to college once I was in high school was, was going to be the route of football. It seemed the easier way to go. And so I just kind of started putting more eggs in the football basket and then gave baseball up. And what was that recruiting process like for football? Because you end up going to Long Beach State, and I know you moved to California. But So what was that whole process like for you? Well, I moved to California when I was in, uh, going to be a junior in high school. I uh, went to go live with my father, and 
I was new there and I went in the summer. Uh, I got injured in the summer practices and it was a really good football team that was coming back. It was a brand new school, but it had, you know, they put together a really good team that eventually ended up winning the championship, but I was hurt. Couldn't really show anything. Couldn't break into the lineup. So I actually ended up starting a year off on JV as a junior. So imagine that a guy from the football <laughs> mecca of Florida going to California, um, you know, oozing all this confidence. And then I get hurt and I wind up on JV. But um, again, the competitive nature took over. I went nuts on JV, uh, really through my play, demanded a spot on varsity, which I ended up being moved up to, played well in some playoff games, and then came back my senior year and and then really had one hell of a senior year playing both ways, returning kicks, doing all that. I made up for I made up for an entire three, four years in just that one year. However, when you don't have that publicity going into your senior year, it's very difficult to get recruited by high level schools like USC, UCLA and Arizona and the big schools that were out west, just any of the big schools there. You're not on the radar coming into the season. It's tough for them to get on you late. So the biggest offer I had coming out of high school was from Cal Berkeley. And, you know, not really knowing, not having much guidance. Uh, my father didn't go through this process. He played basketball, didn't know much about it, kind of just let it go the way that it was going to go. I waited in accepting a scholarship offer from Cal, thought I could go take all my trips, and they eventually ended up giving a scholarship to someone else. And Long Beach State came on the scene. It was um, being coached by George Allen and, and the defensive back coach was Willie Brown. These are people from my dad's era. I've got no clue who these guys are. <laughs> um, I just remember George Allen giving a speech because um, it was NFL films and Willie Brown jumping in front of a pass against the Minnesota Vikings uh, with a full beard running down the sidelines for a 75-yard time. But other than that, I didn't know much about him. My dad did. He kind of nudged me in that direction. So I ended up going to Long Beach State over – Cal State Fullerton, which I'm glad I didn't do. UNLV, where I knew I would never complete a degree or probably become anything because I had so much fun on that trip. Um, and then San Diego State, which was great for me, which I thought was a great school. And I tried to commit to them and called my dad. And he blew up on me on the phone and quickly decommitted. I, I committed to San Diego State for like five minutes. And so what was the reason why your dad didn't want you to go to San Diego State? My older cousin had gone to San Diego State, and my dad did not feel like his career went the way that it should have there. They played around with him too much. And so um, he did not want me to, to go there. And so I politely asked, well, why did you let me go on the trip? Which he responded with something super high volume. I don't even remember. But um, I got it from the tone of his voice that I wasn't going to be committing to San Diego State. So. I had to tell old Al Luganville, um, I, I hereby decommit from that commitment I just made to you five minutes ago. So the difficult part was my dad trying to come through the phone from Los Angeles while I was in San Diego. The <laughs> 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 man tried to snatch me through the phone and slap me and then put me back over there. Oh, so now how influential was your dad in just in your life, uh, helping you make these type of decisions, I mean, were you at a position where you really listened to everything that your dad said? My dad didn't really give me hard guidance. My, my dad was kind of like a, like a Yoda type, like a Mr. Miyagi type. Wouldn't necessarily tell me what to do. He'd just throw out little parables like that, and I had to figure it out. You know, what he didn't, he didn't really, he didn't really help me with the process the way that I was able to help my kids, A, because, I, you know, my dad didn't know much, and he was a, a, a worker's man. Um, get up super early in the morning um, because he was in a town called Moreno Valley, and it's a two-hour drive to Los Angeles where he works. He'd leave at 6 o'clock. He'd get home at 8 o'clock. And when he got home, um, as you can imagine, he's fully tired. Just couldn't be a whole big part of that process. What he did help me with was understanding and teaching me about George Allen and why I might want to play for someone like that in my why, as a defensive back, I might want to play for Willie Brown. But uh, outside of that, not a whole lot of help with the process. What he did, though, though, is make me grow up and be in a position where I could make that decision as a man. So he, he helped me be independent and be a man and be able to make such a big decision. How did your dad affect how you became 
or when you were a dad and your kids going through this process? Because, I mean, you've got a son that's playing at the University of Florida. You've got a son that's playing with the Indianapolis Colts. How did it change how you became a parent? You know, it's funny that you asked that because as I was telling you about uh, my father helping me grow up and become a man to make that decision, that's essentially what, um, you know, my wife and I ended up doing for our kids, except you know, I was able to do it throughout their entire life. As growing up, my parents were divorced, and my father lived in Los Angeles. My mother lived in New York City, so I would see my dad only in the summer. So I would get, you know, two months of of my dad and then 10 months of my, my mom. So it wasn't there on a daily basis. But, um, you know, being here, being married, um, and having my kids around me every day, um, and my wife being a part of the process, we, we from the from the beginning, we just raised independent kids. I mean, the kids were washing their own clothes before they could even see inside of the washing machine. They threw it <laughs> in thing, and they knew it came back out clean. But so everything was independent. So by the time they got around to making that decision, 17 years old, they were able to do it. And um, it was just a matter of me kind of teaching them what would go into making not only this decision, but big decisions in their life. Um, you gather information. You process it. You don't get pressured. Um, you evaluate it. You make the pros and cons, and then you you know you go ahead and make a decision. So that's the that's the influence that I had, um, and that my wife had on the kids ultimately making their school choice. Now you're at Long Beach State playing, but the I mean they end the program. The football team is no longer a football team, and that's when you transfer to University of Miami. So. How did that process or what was that process like from a player's perspective when, I mean, how were you notified that the football program was going to be dissolved and what did you do? Well, to give you like a quick history, I went to Long Beach State. I played as a freshman. I think I was the first freshman in like five years to start a game. Um, I think I started the last five games of freshman year in 1990. We were actually a good team. George Allen turned the team around. Um, we had a winning season. We won on, we won on the last game of the season playing UNLV. Um, and then things started really looked good. I mean, George Allen had done what George Allen was supposed to do, what he'd always done, you know, turn programs around and he was doing that. Um, you know, unfortunately he caught a bout of pneumonia, um, that December that he never recovered from and he ended up passing away. So we went through a coaching change. Um, I was, um, not sure I wanted to stay at the program. I called Cal Berkeley and was trying to transfer there and I was getting in the process of that. And then the coaches got wind of it. They named Willie Brown, the coach. He called me, they talked me out of it. And I came back and played the second year. Um, as I suspected, um, we weren't very good and it was a tumultuous year. We, you know, got handled easily by a lot of teams. And one of those teams was the university of Miami. So, we came down for the game. We got beat 55 nothing. And listen, Rich, it could have been 85, 95 nothing if they wanted it to be. Really, it was, they didn't even do anything and they scored 55 points. Um, they had a return man named Kevin Williams at the time. Um, Florida State didn't kick the ball to him. Um, you know, the uh, Oklahoma State wouldn't kick the ball to him. Our special teams coach decided that we're going to kick the ball to him. Despite my pleas during the week, I said, Coach, I kicked the ball out of bounds. Why are we kicking the ball to the guy? First kick, he catches it um, untouched in the end zone, touchdown. So I give the coach the, the death stare. He proceeds on the next time to kick it to him again, darts through our defense again, and basically scores. They cheated him out of a touchdown. He got pulled down at the half-inch line. And I was like, you know, that was just a, the idea. We just weren't right. We got destroyed. I get in the plane afterwards after getting humbled in front of my hometown uh, family and friends, 55 nothing. And I get on the plane and guys are talking and, and drinking the little cocktails. And you, you would have had no idea that we lost 55 nothing. And so I was like, man, you know, I'm not, I'm not down. I'm not down with this at all. And so the next week we get blown out again. I get disgruntled. Um, I started actually talking to Florida State. Reached out to Florida State because I was I wanted to leave. I was going to go back to Florida. I was going to transfer. Florida State um, told me I could walk on, and I was ready to do it. And uh, I go and talk to Willie Brown, and I say, hey, "Listen, I think I'm you know I want to transfer." Um, he wasn't happy about it, but I insisted on it. And 
Um, you know, he told me, just tell me what schools you want to go to. And I said, Florida State. And we just left it at that. So I come to practice that day and I proceed to get five, six bombs in a row run on me by the wide receivers, one right after the other. Um, and one of the first guys named Mark Say, who ended up playing pro ball, caught it. And uh, uh, like all, the, almost the whole team started doing the tomahawk chop to me. So he told them that I was trying to, you know, leave the team and go to Florida State. Wow. So imagine my surprise. I, got, I did not know this, that he told them this, and I get a tomahawk chop from all of uh, the football team after that first one. And then the next five proceeded to be incomplete. And after about four or five of them, I jumped up and said, that's why I'm leaving. I'm too good for y'all. That was it for me. They pulled me out of the starting lineup. I didn't even go to the last game. And um, funny thing was my roommate was also disgruntled. He was getting ready to get out of there too. We didn't even listen to the last game on the radio. We turned it on. We said, well, I wonder what's going on with the game. And so we turned it. And just as we turned the the, the, uh, radio on, uh, they threw – we're playing New Mexico State. They threw a pass, a last-second pass, caught it in the end zone, touchdown, they beat us. And I said, oh, that sounds about right. So nevertheless, um, he refused to give me a release. And eventually, after a while, he called me down to the office. He gave me my release to leave. Two days later, here comes the announcement that they're cutting the football program. So I was like, well, this guy knew that they were cutting the football program. And now the players were the currency and maybe – um, I could help with a job somewhere else. I didn't know what the thinking was. I just like that really, that smelled a little bit. But nevertheless, they call us into the team meeting room and I'm elated. Um, this means now I don't have to go walk on somewhere. That means I can go anywhere without having to sit out. And they make this announcement and I'm happy. Me personally, I'm happy. But then guys that were going to be seniors erupted in that room. Um, some of them threw chairs. Some dudes started crying. I had never thought about their situation. And it was at that point I was forced to realize what, you know, what kind of jam that puts them in. You're going into your senior year and you got to find another place to play football. Um, your life is uprooted. And um, I immediately felt really bad for those guys. But what was done was done. And so my recruiting process started all over again. This time, it's a lot more fruitful because I played as a freshman. I played as a sophomore. I'm a Division One guy that has played. Uh, I have Division One experience, and I got. I was heavily recruited this time. So LSU, Houston, uh, Iowa, Colorado. All, you know, almost all the big programs. I, I didn't get who I wanted, so I called a friend of mine named Ryan Collins, who's playing for the University of Miami. I said, "Hey, they just cut our football program. Can you see if these guys would be interested?" So. Um, he talked to Randy Shannon, who was an assistant on the on the uh, staff, and they pulled out. You know what they did? They pulled out the film of our game against them, and, and I was playing in front of the home team, so I was playing hard as hell. <laughs> and off, and you know, and off of that, they decided to offer me a scholarship. And um, only thing I didn't like about the process was I'd set up all these trips, and one of them was to Hawaii, where I'd never been. And uh, Randy Shannon called me one day and said, hey, listen, if you want a scholarship to the University of Miami, school starts um, in three days. You're going to have to get down here. And I was like, uh, I'm there. But that was <laughs> it. I wasn't able to take all those trips. And You had learned your lesson. You better take advantage of it uh, quickly before scholarship is gone. Yeah. When he said scholarship, I was there. There's no delay. I'm coming. I'll be there. So, now, have you um, have you been able to make it back to Hawaii or make it to Hawaii? I have not made it to Hawaii. <laughs> Wife's been, I've not been, so you know I'm gonna one day take that trip. That's right. Um, I might show up at the school and tell them I've got a I've got a year of eligibility left. If you guys still are interested <laughs> or something. So you get to Miami. You know we hear you know the U and people that have played there and fans talk about, you know, the fraternity of the U. So describe exactly what that is like, the fraternity of the U. Well, at the first team meeting, I come into the team meeting room and guys were beating on the tables and they were dancing. And I was like, this is not Long Beach State. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally different. Uh, so that was my first introduction to things from outside of Lamar Thomas, who was a wide receiver at the time, very brash, 
um, knowing that I was a new guy and I was a defensive back and, and uh, meeting me at various places on campus and trying to intimidate me while I'm going to class, um, letting me know that I wouldn't be able to cover him. Uh, I wouldn't be able to hold his jock strap. You know, he, you know, so he would hit me with that every now and then. But going into that first team meeting and guys were just going nuts, you just realized it was a, you know, a totally different thing. One of the biggest things though, um, that I, that I picked up immediately at the University of Miami that I had tried to instill in every team that I coached was player accountability. Guys accounting, being accountable to each other and holding each other accountable. Um, you weren't even worried about the coaches. You know, you were worried about your teammates coming to you. A prime example of that was my first season there. Um, we're, we're playing Florida State, opening kickoff. Uh, to Merrick Vanover, catches it. I miss the tackle. He goes all the way for the touchdown. Coming off the field, and one of our defensive tackles, Mark Caesar, comes all the way out to the numbers and meets me right there and punches me right in the chest and says a whole bunch of stuff, uh, you know, you're not going to say on the podcast. <laughs> but, you know, I, like, he held me, like, after that, I'm not worried about the phone ringing on the sidelines from the coach. I mean, I already got an earful from Mark season. Um, so it was really that, I think that was one of the strengths of the university of Miami back then, um, was that your players held each other accountable. I mean, you're worried about your peers when you're growing up. So it only made sense that, you know, we hold each other accountable and we, we look out for each other. And were you somewhat nervous or felt a little bit of lack of confidence when you first got there as you see that this is different than Long Beach State? Nervous, but never a lack of confidence. I was very confident what I could do as a defensive back. I will say this, though. The first practice that we had, we would come out, we'd stretch, and then there'd be a circle, and some player would be called out in the middle of the circle to kind of get everyone hyped for practice, and then, you know, jog out and you start practice. Well, that first day, um, Horace Copeland, a wide receiver, got called out. A tremendous athlete, one of the best athletes I've ever been around. He came out to the middle, and I know this is one of the wide receivers on the team, and he does a backflip. And Rich, he didn't bend his knees. He didn't do anything. Like he was in a standstill, suddenly backflip. And I was like, damn it, I've got to cover this guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, but I was up for the challenge. This is why I wanted to leave Long Beach State. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to see how great I could be. And as Ray said on the stage when he was giving his Hall of Fame speech, you're surrounded by so much greatness. So if you plan on sticking around, you're going you're gonna to pull out the best of you and lay it out there. So um, it was for me, it was an eye-opener, like, hey, this is real. This, there's going to be real guys out here. And then I was also excited to say, you know, let me see what I can do against these guys. And that's really how it works. And so why defensive back? Why was that a position that you gravitated towards? You know, it's, it's where did you ask that? Because the guy responsible for that um, passed away about four months ago. Young, by the way, 48 years old. But when I was playing Little League ball, I was a running back, and then I would occasionally play defensive back. And this guy by the name of Al Collins, um, whose brother Ryan Collins is the one who told Randy Shannon about me at the University of Miami. I grew up with these guys. But he kept telling me about, you should be a defensive back. This is 1985. I mean, there's what defensive back does everyone grow up dreaming that they want to be? That's not it. You, That's right. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to be Eric Dickerson. Um, I've got the I've got the neck roll, and you know if I could see what I'm on, I would have wore the Rex specs too. That's how bad I wanted to be Eric Dickerson. I want to score touchdowns, and he kept saying this thing about defensive back, defensive back, defensive back, and I'm just not with it. They don't score touchdowns, but he ingrained it in my head, and I just started over time to warm up to it more and more and more. So when I ended up moving out to California, I I played running back and wide receiver, and they would throw me over onto defensive back because I was a good athlete. But after a while, I just started to really warm up to it, and I was I kind of taught myself um, at defensive back. I had a DB coach. He taught me the basics, but I would take games on beta and VHS. I probably, I probably just lost half of your young audience. That's right. I, <laughs> they have no idea would, what you're talking about. <laughs> no idea, but, you know, Google and YouTube's a wonderful thing for young guys. They want to go back and find out what those things are. But um, I would take the games. 
And I would come back and watch them later, and I'd watch the technique that the guys were using, and then I would go to practice and try and implement it and then, you know, do it in games. And so I ended up becoming a pretty good defensive back, um, especially my senior year. They would put me on the top guy, the top wide receiver, and it became fun to shut that guy down, and his stats were the lowest that they were, and they couldn't get the ball to him, and he was a playmaker. So, um, And around that time that I was getting in my senior year, some dude named Deion Sanders turned that position around and it became cool to be a defensive back. So, you know, he changed everyone's mind about it. So by then, um, it was cool to be a defensive back and I just took it and ran with it. And of course, Willie Brown, um, recruited me and whether I wanted to be a running back or not, if Willie Brown was recruiting you, you're going to play defensive back. And so that's kind of how that went. Describe then though, as a defensive back, I mean, you're out there somewhat on an island covering these guys and, you're going up against some of these athletes who they make plays, and that's just the reality of it. So how do you process just the aspect of got to forget about that play and be ready for the next one? How, how did you do that mentally? You know, that's just the nature of the, of the, of the position. You know, um, if you play running back, you know you're going to get hit. Um, if you're playing quarterback, you know you got to be smart. You know what I mean? Uh, so – you're playing defensive back, you know you're out there on an island, you're covering the best guy, your guy's not supposed to catch the ball, and if he does catch it, you got to have a short memory. Now, every defensive back coach that I've ever had, and I had five of them in five years of college, um, all said that. Uh, that was one constant thing. got to have a short memory. When that play is over, it's over. You got beat, forget it. It happens to everybody. So that just becomes a part of the position, and uh, you embrace it. One of the great things for me, though, in my career as a defensive back was that it started off at Long Beach State being coached by a former Raider who was all about man-to-man and bump and run and, and just the real pressurized part of playing that position. And so that was my introduction really into being a defensive back was we're lined up, we're going to play bump and run coverage, and you've got this guy all over the field. And so it was good that I didn't have to learn that later on. To me, that's what the position was. And so, you know, I got that put in me early on. What are some of the best memories you have of playing at University of Miami, some of the big games that you vividly remember? Man, there's so many memories. Uh, I would say that first game against Florida State, my first year there, it was, uh, you know, wide right two and – just how hot the game was, how much energy there was there, just how much of a battle it was, um, and it going all the way down to that final kick attempted by their kicker who who missed it. Um, yeah, and that's actually that kicker Dan Mowry is a good friend of mine, and he's been on the podcast as well. So there's a connection there. Cool. Well, it's good to know you rebounded it from that. But yeah, Dan Mowry um, pushed that thing wide right, and and just how. You know, the fans and, and the guys react. I remember guys being hooked up to IVs on the sideline. I mean, li- I mean, literally, it's a game, but it sure looked like war as you walk through the sideline. So my definitely my uh, memories of that. Um, uh, I do remember the final game, which we ended up my, uh, losing. It uh, might have been the biggest crowd ever at the Orange Bowl. We played Nebraska, um, had the game won, and then lost it. Um, Tommy Fraser came off the bench. Should have known something because we're all muddied and, and brown, and he jogs off the sidelines in these white pants, and I was like, "This can't be good at all." <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? So um, I do remember that. I remember I remember playing in the Sugar Bowl where we got you know handled by Alabama. Um, you know, I do remember. I do remember that. There's just just so many um, memories that I have there, and then of course the the guys that I played with. You know. Um, I played with two Hall of Famers at the University of Miami, um, and and perhaps the world's biggest movie star. I sit here and think about that. In my playing career of college football, I played with three Hall of Famers and the world's biggest movie star in The Rock. I think about that. Did, could you get a sense of what he was going to become when you played with him? Um, look, I could sit here and tell you I knew he'd become the biggest movie star um, in the world today. Um, then. You know, I'd be lying to you, and I probably should have played the lotto if I knew that much. I didn't know this. He's a great guy with a good personality, and it's, I'm not surprised that he is successful. But I, to say that he would go on to be the biggest movie star, I didn't know that. I didn't even know he would go into movies, although it's 
it seemed like that would be a, a thing he could do. So I'm extremely happy for him because he's, he's genuinely a good guy. The guy you see on that Instagram um, and the guy that comes across in interviews, that's, that's Dwayne Johnson. He's a good dude. And what about your next step out of, out of University of Miami with the NFL? You tried to make some teams. What was that process like? You know, coming out, and this is, uh, you know, I wish I would have had more guidance coming out, you know. Um, but again, it just, that just didn't happen for me. So I made my mistakes along the way. And I've been able to use it to help my own kids and as well as others. But it's funny, you know, you're leaving the Hall of Fame. I started thinking about, you know, my career. And, um, you know, there's definitely some things I might have done differently. But coming out, I was undrafted. Again, I had the same situation that I did in high school. Um, I'd, wa- I'd won the starting job my junior year at Miami. Ended up getting hurt um, after the first game. Um, tried to come back because essentially it was my last year. I'd never redshirted. So I was trying to come back, and I was, I was splitting time with another guy, and I wasn't at 100%. And I was like, this is not how I want to play any part of my senior year, you know, trying to struggle through, you know, a knee injury. And the guy I was, you know, splitting time with, this was his fifth year. And so I just thought it best to, you know what, let me fall back. He, he can finish his fifth year without having to split time with me. He can make the most out of his last year. I'm available to take a red shirt. Let me take the red shirt and I'll just come back next year. So I didn't really have any publicity going into my senior year. I was a guy who had just won a job. I'm going to play one year at the University of Miami. Had a great senior year, uh, made all biggies. But again, I just didn't have that pub. And then when the process, uh, when the season was over, I just didn't have guidance in the process. Kind of did everything on my own. And so didn't make enough of an impression in the pre-draft process to get drafted. So uh, came time for free agency. Um, Dennis Erickson had left Miami and was now the new head coach at Seattle. And I chose to go there because I felt like uh, these guys know me. I'm comfortable there and I should be okay. And in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done that. I had offers from other teams, including the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I really needed to, should have gone to someplace where I wouldn't be as uncomfortable and, I would act like that, um, you know, be uncomfortable and hungry and not think that someone's going to help me out. And I ended up going to Seattle and felt like, okay, these guys will take care of me. I'll figure things out. I'll kind of hang back a little bit. I'll figure things out. And then I'll come back next year knowing everything I need to know, and I'll take off from there. Well, I didn't get that second year. They ended up cutting me at the end of training camp. Never thought they would do that to me. You know, they know me. They would take care of me, and um, I was a little bitter about it at first, but when I, as I got older and matured and thought of it, I was like, you know, I did kind of kick that. I did kind of not go as hard as I should have or I would have had I been somewhere else where they didn't know me, and so um, I guess they ended up doing what they had to do. I didn't really understand the politics and the accounting of football and why it would be easy to cut me as an undrafted free agent because they didn't invest that much into me, a $7,500 signing bonus is pocket change. They could cut that loose. Um, you know, had I had all that in my head and understood it, I might have acted differently. So, you know, with that, I just, I just take what I learned from that process and I pass it on to other guys and hopefully they can take it and be successful with it. That's right. I mean, now you have a testimony. You've walked that walk and you've experienced that. And part of that is yeah. also, you know, what you're doing now with, gridironstuds.com and I know it's more than just a website and you've got the gridiron studs show uh, podcast mm-hmm. as well so what do, what is all of that can you explain just how you came about to, you know creating that and what you wanted to do with that and the and your purpose with that uh, that kind of happened on accident uh, you know a lot of things a lot of things where uh, this is concerned has happened uh, on accident but I was I just started coaching at a place called Archbishop McCarthy here in South Florida. And um, there was a senior class there with pretty good football players that I thought could play college football. They just were unknown. They were at a school where recruiters didn't come to. They weren't getting much recruiting action. And they had highlight videos on discs. 
there's another thing. I'm, we, now we've lost another part segment of your audience. <laughs> exactly. There, there That's how old we're getting, in. Chad, is that we've moved yeah, through think, technology. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the only thing we've got listening to us right now are the 40 plusers. But um, <laughs> they had these. They had their highlight videos on CD, and I had just opened an account with YouTube, and I said, well, you know what? Let me let me take the highlights off of these CDs. Let me put it on YouTube. And um, I'll contact some coaches that I know, and we'll see what happens. And lo and behold, they got some, they uh, got a little action from colleges by me doing that. I put the videos on YouTube. I send the link to the college coaches. Say, hey, check these guys out. Um, I think these guys can help your program. And um, after a while, I I did it with a couple of other guys that weren't at the school. And so it started to look like a good thing. It could help kids who weren't really being seen because down here in South Florida, there's a lot of great football players and kids can go missing, so to speak. They can get lost in the shuffle. Um, so, uh, I said to myself after a while, well, what if I create a website and the players can just come on whenever they, they want and they can upload their highlight videos or they can, you know, provide their YouTube link. And I will just tell the colleges, go to my website, because um, I'd owned a business before uh, with a website. So I was kind of, I understood how that whole thing worked. I would just tell coaches, you can come to this website and see some of these players that I think are pretty good. And one thing led to another. And kids locally started jumping on and, and putting their highlights on there and making profiles. And then kids out of state and then kids out of the country in Canada. And then I found out they played they play American football in Switzerland and it just took off, um, you know, worldwide web. So I'm finding out there's football all over the place. And it was cool to be able to see, um, kids playing football all over the country, how they play it. Um, and it just kind of just took off from there. And then there was a guy, uh, by the name of Jeff Luck that was from Port St. Lucie, um, ended up going to Florida state, but he put his video on late one night. And I was getting ready to go to bed, and I ended up clicking on the video. And this guy was about 240 pounds, 6'1", 240 pounds, muscles coming out of everywhere, and just completely annihilating kids on a high school football field. And um, I went to bed feeling sorry for everyone that he played against. <laughs> but when I got up this morning, I made sure that I got that out to every college coach, and then I, you know it started taking off. It was all over. Um, um, all over websites and it started getting into message boards and everyone was clicking the link and then that's kind of how the site took off. Everyone was coming to see this guy, Jeff Luck, and the site kind of just took off from there. Thank you, Jeff Luck. Well, and as you said, it was part luck and I guess he was that luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thank him for crushing everyone in Port St. Lucie that he played against and for putting his uh, highlight on my website. And so outside of what you're doing in, in terms of helping kids have this exposure, what's some of the other big differences within recruiting that you've seen? Because, I mean, your kids have been recruited and you've been recruited and you're helping kids get recruited with getting exposure. But what's some of the biggest differences that you've seen in recruiting today? Um, man, there's, uh, you know, obviously there's a big contrast between um, how things were when I was getting recruited compared to what it is now. Social media has really changed everything. Um, the internet has changed everything. Um, you can find kids in any corner of, uh, of the, of, of any state in the country now, whereas before it'd be very difficult. A coach would have to get, would have to, you know, actually fly down here and just start driving up and down the highways and jumping off at schools and, and finding kids. Uh, whereas now you can sit at your desk and you've got, you know, four or five people in your recruiting department that will comb through websites like mine or, or, or even download my app, which, you know, I ended up creating because of my kids. You know, they said, you know, dad, uh, we don't really use computers anymore. Everything's on the phone. I want to get an app. <laughs> so I had an app created and that's really what I, you know, that I push now. Um, so the app's created and, and, you know, players can go on there and create a profile and put their highlight videos on there and colleges, uh, college coaches now download the app and go on there and they just going through the results, um, you know, and, and see all of the players that are on the app, which is, you know, well over a thousand, we're moving close to 2000 players on the app. And so you can do that. You could be sitting in an airport terminal 
scrolling through the results um, and 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 looking at players from all over the country. So you can be sitting in an airport in Miami looking at a kid in Tennessee and determining whether or not you want to actually recruit that kid before you go fly out to Tennessee to go see him. So um, it's a lot more efficient. Um, like I said, social media allows kids to be promoted more. Um, it's just become a big deal. Um, rivals and 247 and round-the-clock coverage and, um, you know, reporting on everything. Uh, kids, the commitments, um, we didn't make commitments like back in the day. There was none of that. You didn't commit as a sophomore for crying out loud. Um, you didn't get offers in eighth grade. None of that went on. You got an offer in your senior year, and um, if you liked the school, you committed soon thereafter. And when you committed, you went to that school. There was no flipping, no decommitments, none of that stuff um, that they have now. So um, it's changed quite a bit over the years, and I'm sure there'll be more changes to come. Things seem to be moving lightning fast. Without a doubt. But one thing that still remains constant, it seems, is just – this affinity towards sports and the impact that it can have in people's lives. So how would you sum it up in terms of what sports has meant in your life? Um, it's been a very important part of my life. It provided structure, provided organization for me. It provided me with a lot of skills that I use to this day. Um, you know, help me become a man, help me become um, a successful individual. Um, I took a lot from um, especially the game of football and just tried to apply it to life. And I wish I try to stress that to, to young kids. You know, if you were a successful football player and you happen to be on a successful football team, you have learned everything that you need to know to be successful in life. If you want to realize that and apply it. Um, and I just don't think enough kids realize that. Um, you know, you went to practice. There was a practice plan. Um, you move from period to period. Um, when you faced adversity, you had to overcome it if you were going to win the game. And I think if you just go out and apply those things that you use to beat your opponent and to try and win a championship, you can be a champion at life. And so, um, fortunately, I realized that and I've tried to take those lessons and apply them to my life. And now at this point, try and pass that on to as many others as I can. So, um, sports has been, I, I endorse that for all kids. It doesn't mean you're going to be a professional athlete, but you know, it's going to be the, the, the key ingredient, that missing ingredient that you can add to your academics. You got to have the academics, but sports gives you that other thing that you'd be missing. Um, once you're trying to go out there and you're trying to be in the workforce or you're trying to be a successful entrepreneur or, or you know, accomplish anything. A lot of times when you see a very successful person um, in business or in life and you dig into their history, they were an athlete at some point. Um, they were competitive at something. You know, it's rare that you don't get that. So sports, in trying to win and, and it's, it's competition, you kind of learn a lot of the things that you need because life is competition. It is competition, that's for sure. And you already actually started giving some advice that you're trying to pass on. So I always ask this of every guest, what's some words of wisdom that has meant a lot to you? Any phrases, quotes, mottos, and or just even some more advice that has been impactful in your life? Well, two biggest things that I got from my parents was um, from my mom, um, don't be ordinary. You know, she just stressed that to me. Just you're not an ordinary person. Don't be ordinary. And then my dad um, drove home the point that nobody owes you anything. So you're going to work for everything that you get. And I think just on the strength of those two things, um, if I didn't get any other advice, um, you know, uh, I think I would have been fine with that. Um, and then also uh, my grandmother was very instrumental in my raising. She was the one with me in Trinidad um, when my parents were going through the divorce. Um, she put, she put faith in God, um, and Christianity into my life. And it's really been, um, a force that I could lean on as I've gone through the years where my friends would keep going. Um, I had to live, you know, like, okay, I think you guys can drop me off at home here. I'm not going to go do that. You know what I mean? So I always had a stop sign where others did not, um, because I could hear my grandmother's voice. And she would tell me that God is always watching. So it was good to have that in my life. Um, those three things, plus you can get an awful lot in life just by being a good person. 
And it's really not that hard. Just be genuinely interested in other people um, and be a good person. And a lot of doors can open for you. And it's really just that simple. Well said. And wrapping up here then, Chad, you got to help settle a debate then. Two Hall of Famers at the University of Miami, Ray Lewis and Warren Sapp. Oh, man. Tell me, who's the better player? Wow. uh, You said you were having technical difficulties earlier. Could they come back in now? (laughs) So you don't want to answer, do you? (laughs) No, uh, that's an extremely difficult question to answer. I will say this. I'm as fortunate as anyone to have played with with both of these men. Um, I remember being in a game. Um, against West Virginia and a wide receiver by the name of James Jett, who was an Olympian, got inside of me on a play where it man to man and he got a step or two on me and he's running to the other side of the field and I can run, but I knew he wasn't coming back. And I'm just thinking of all the bad things that are going to happen. We're in the Orange Bowl. He's going to catch this ball. It's going to be an 80 yard touchdown and I'm going to be the GOAT. And then I hear the crowd cheering and I'm, we're at home. So that's got to be good. I look back. And Warren Sapp's on top of the quarterback. So I was very, very thankful for something like that. And then I also remember when Ray came into the huddle the first time, just from the way that he called the play and the energy he gave off, um, and which might be hard for someone who's never played to understand, but it's just the way that the energy that he gave off made you want to go out and win that play right then and there. You're going to win that play right then and there. Um, and so you understand why those two guys are in the Hall of Fame. I will say this, and this might be shocking for people. People ask me, who's the best athlete I've ever been around? And there were a ton of guys at the University of Miami, and one of them being Horace Copeland, who could do a backflip without bending his knees. But I will say to this day, it's Warren Sapp. For a man to be that big, and he could run sprints um, after practice with the running backs, and he could rock back on a dunk when he was getting up there close to 300 pounds, um, a tremendous athlete to me, and I'd, uh, I've never been around a leader like Ray. So I don't, I didn't really answer your question. I know I wouldn't have been the player that I was uh, without either one of those guys. So you know, flip a coin on that. We'll Tell me let how it goes. yeah, we'll let you <laughs> off the hook on that one because I know it's probably splitting hairs being able to try to decipher oh, who yeah. is the better player, Ray Lewis or Warren Sapp. But Chad, I can't thank you enough for being a guest on the podcast and just excited that we we're able to be connected. So thank you so much, Chad. Thank you, Rich. I really appreciate you having me on and taking this trip down memory lane. The perceived easy road in life often becomes the road with disappointment because it doesn't force you to push yourself. And while Chad might not have had the NFL career he had hoped, he has been able to apply so many lessons through his journey when he didn't take the easy path. He didn't take the easy path by founding a media company. He didn't take that easy path by creating a video platform for high school football players to be connected with coaches and even creating the Gridiron Studs app wasn't an easy path, but it just further proves that a challenging path can be even more impactful and rewarding. Now that finishes episode 76. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.